0: Daddy never cried, he never shed a tear, had trouble showing love, forget about fear. Our guest today is Dave Newcomer. He's a good friend of ours, a wonderful actor and improviser, and uh, we've known Dave for a long time, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Great to be with you both.
1: So glad that you joined us today, Dave.
0: Well, thank you. And so I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Cindy Carter, and we'll find out about your father and your relationship.
1: Dave, we know that you spent a little time thinking about what stories you might share with us. What story would you like to use to describe your relationship with your father?
2: Wow, a description of the relationship. It's a long relationship, a good, really solid
0: relationship. How would you say your father's unique uh,
2: as a man and as a father? Well, as I was listening to your other podcasts uh, and your other guests, I would normally say I don't see him as being unique, but he is a blend of what many other people have described on your show as their fathers. So maybe his uniqueness is his assembly of all those traits. It might be different from father to father, but sort of like your stories, father was very patriarchal. He was military; ten years in the military, but. That wasn't as much of an influence as I would have thought, but it was definitely present in my younger years. Yeah. How old were you when he was in the military? His 10 years were over and I was only two or three years old. So ah. I did not experience him as an active military person. So he was present most of the time when you were growing up. Yes. Yes. Almost all the time.
1: What would you say is your earliest memory of him?
2: Well, there were little things, but kind of a noteworthy story that I remember pretty young was when I was in kindergarten. And in the afternoon, parents come up and pick you up, teacher standing at the top of the little stairway there, and you run down to your car. So this particular day, kind of unusual, though, my dad picked me up. And so I see him, I come out, give the teacher a kiss goodbye, and jump in the car. Dad says, I'd like to kiss your teacher. (laughs)
1: oh hello
2: it wasn't as creepy as quite that but it it was sort of like you know that seemed nice
1: but it seems significant to you you remembered that
2: i do i do yep what grade were you in at that time that was kindergarten that was kindergarten (laughs) at the same time he was forcing me to eat spinach that i would end up tossing out at the table you know so it was combination of different aspects of him you know the fun playful i'd like to kiss your teacher and that you're eating your spinach whether you like it or not yeah and,
1: and then you said you tossed it out how did you get away with that
2: no i vomited it out it just tossed <laughs> it <was> easier <laughs> Oh, oh. he didn't force me the next time just saying
1: Oh.
0: That- do you think there was a military bearing to his uh, discipline
2: very very much so we went through a period where he made us call him mm-hmm. sir just so we would learn that that's how it could be I was taught to bounce a quarter off my bed when I made it. I don't do the corners on the bed so it was taught, because that was a military thing that happened. We were taught the appropriate way to shower. It's sort of like the same way, same lesson as washing my car. You start from the top and work your way down. That way you're not washing clean over dirty. I've heard this. This is a
0: military... uh and orientation, the of shower.
1: I totally missed that lesson in my youth. So that <laughs> I'm not sure you missed lot. out on anything, I'm just saying. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs>
2: and the bouncing the quarter off the bed, that hasn't come useful either. Just <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> so, there's a combination of, of strict and playful and freedom. When you asked me my first memory, mm-hmm. one of the earliest ones was a little game. This thing was, would you like to see how a crow lights on a fence? I did not know what, know what that meant, so I said yes. So he takes his hand and clasps it on the top of my leg just above the knee with a massive squeeze, like the talon of a bird on a post, how it would land, and squeezes real hard until you say uncle or you give up. And that eventually became a competition. We would do it to each other at the same time, <laughs> which was a form of something that was passed down from my grandfather and he. A similar version of that, where you grab the inside of the leg and you squeeze and see who can hold out the longest.
1: Was there ever a time when you held out the longest?
2: I think we gave up the game before that happened. I
1: would think so.
2: (laughs) I think it took me a long time to overpower my dad at almost
0: anything. Yeah, That does sound like something that would be passed down from his father to him when you said the crow on the fence i thought uh-oh, uh oh there's something going on a test of manhood here or something that's yeah wow it looks like you
2: have a couple of stories here why don't you tell us one of your stories one of the things is an early story for me which i'm not so sure i remember versus the story being told so frequently because mm. i was change pretty it. young they mm-hmm. change over and time. so part of your podcast there's been talk about fathers uh, or parents who either understood and supported their ch- children's path or choices or kind of didn't understand them my dad's philosophy was you find what you're interested in get it all set up and if i have to i'll pay for it or whatever but you're interested you make it happen and find your deal i was only slightly disappointed in later life that he didn't force me to do a few things because he's a really talented musician can play almost every instrument there is and i was never a kid that was told you're gonna have piano for a while when you're five i wish he would have you know, but I'm really glad I got to find my own choices. But because one of the choices I made, which he could not relate to, was going down the acting road. Uh-huh. And one of the reasons I believe that I have gotten to a level in acting that I have or that it was drawn to me is your emotional availability. Well, my dad, when I was super young, again, I think this is before my memories, but I've heard this story a bunch of times. He would sometimes use me for entertainment when the guests came over. You know, some people are like, sing out Louise or whatever. He would say, watch this. And he would look at me seriously and say, David, cry. <laughs> and my lip would begin to quiver. And I would cry. And as an actor now, as a 60-plus-year-old actor, I can still
1: if cry. Somebody somebody their says, eyes if somebody squints If somebody says, you. you know,
2: if something sternly says, and I cry, I can get there. So I blame him and credit him all at the same time.
0: So was this before you exhibited an interest in acting, or did that spur your interest in
2: acting? Well, David cry when I was infant, you know, three, four years old, something like two, three, four years old. He would tell you to cry. Yeah, yeah. Again, I'm not sure I remember the actual doing it in front of his guests, Ah. but the story was there the whole time. So it's one of those blurs between the memory and the story. Yeah. And that was really early on, because it didn't happen after I was kindergarten and have more memories that was just something that kind of went away but came up years later when you know somebody asked me as an actor well how do you cry and I'm like "Well, I don't know (laughs) I just always have
1: (laughs) wait until somebody tells you to cry and then you do when somebody
2: you really expect tells you to you do it
1: but But it uh, does tell me one thing about your father was a he was intuitive about your emotional nature and b he loved to play with that
2: yeah. yeah. He doesn't understand um, the world of acting and the whole dynamics of it and where you go and all that. And uh, therefore, I didn't always invite him to everything. He wasn't a parent that came to every track meet or every show or anything like that. That was part of the find your own thing. And you do it because you enjoy it, not because I'll come attend. So I didn't always support in that way. But I remember the time in high school, I did mime. I did kind mime artist. And I had a very high level teacher. And so we're in my living room and I'm learning mime and I'm doing the glass box. People on on listening to the podcast can't see me do the glass box right now. But I was doing the glass box and my dad walks in the front door. We're in the living room and we're just committed to doing our glass box. And he's never seen anything like that before. What the hell are you doing? (laughs) And (laughs) so, again, there's. Not a quite connection in that area, but he did not in any way, other than not understanding, make me feel like I shouldn't be doing it or that that's, you know, just too weird and stop it. It was just, I don't get it. You kids, you know, or something like that. Again, so not unsupportive, but not really getting it either. He was
1: totally mystified. Yeah, you threw him for a big loop right there.
2: Yeah. You know what I bet happened,
0: though? When he got around his buddies, he would brag about your ability to, to create a glass box out of thin air. Yeah, I don't know what he, he My kid is really good. Yeah, that's, and that's.
2: I believe that, I truly believe that my dad has always been proud, but he was never a man that really, even when he came to see a play or something, instead of great chops, I'm, well, that one person certainly didn't know their stuff, or there was always some. Sure. Something that needed improvement, either through myself or something out. So there wasn't a bunch of visible pride. You know, that's my boy when I was around. But I do believe, having heard stories now from his friends in later years, and especially one recently, that extremely proud of me. Yeah. It's, again, Daddy never cried and really never showed that kind of uh, touchy-feely pride.
1: Did he cry?
2: That's the podcast. I believe to this point... Maybe only twice have I seen him cry. First time was until I was 14. He was a bit of a non-crying, no overly outward shows of emotion kind of thing. Felt things intensely and all that stuff, but was pretty reserved and all that. But my parents divorced when I was 14. And as we drove out the driveway, his son cries. My dad's son cries. I'm just telling you. As we drove out the driveway, driving down the street, I'm looking out the back window as he's crying in the front lawn. Something I'd never experienced in my life to that point,
0: Oh, you were leaving with your mom and my dad, dad my dad mom was and crying my sister and, and I
2: were driving out. we were moving away mm-hmm. to Wyoming many mm-hmm. states away, and at that point, I thought it was a whole another going to be a whole nother life somewhere else. yeah, that one that yeah. one stands out, yeah. so
1: it was there. that emotion was there, but it sounds like he was a stoic guy in so many ways,
2: yeah, in that stoicism, he never really made me feel bad. About being emotional about crying, especially under circumstances that might justify it. He was never, stop it, no, buck up, butter. He never did that. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. just didn't do it himself. He, and modeled,
1: then... he modeled stoicism for you, but he didn't force it on you. Correct. Uh-huh.
2: Correct. And uh, then the then only other time I can recall to this point is when he got the news his uh, father had passed away. Mm-hmm. And we're here talking about fathers. so Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were you close with your grandfather? Not in time spent. I have a lot of his qualities that uh, are unique to he and I. Mm -hmm. One of the easier ones off the surface is I'm ambidextrous. I write and I eat with my left hand and I play ball or throw ball predominantly with my right and that kind of a thing. My grandfather's exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. Down to every little nuance. I used to mostly play pool left-handed. That was his, but I, you know, also play right-handed. I do think a sense of seeing people in a certain way, a way of observing people, I believe, uh, or being with people. What is... A combination of being a man's man, but also approachable, kind of almost teddy bearish in it. Not too teddy bearish, but, Mm. you know, getting a nice Mm. hug from him... Mm. felt really embraced Mm. because it wasn't just a physical action and even though I didn't spend a lot of physical uh, time with him that feeling is is something I think we share.
1: In so many ways already in your stories you've talked about a combination of a deeply emotional relational style and also this kind of ever present stoicism it's a Quite a blend.
2: And what's funny is my dad's stoicism, I really believe, because my grandfather's, he was manly, but he wasn't stoic. He was available. My grandmother ran that house. And my dad's running his household under the same emotional and kind of dynamic as his mother created. Mother, when we went to my grandfather's funeral, I'm in the back seat crying. My grandmother turns around and goes, stop it. We need to be strong. Wow. Mm. My other relatives, after we got out of the car, said, no, you don't.
1: Yeah.
2: Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I, I think that trait in my father came from his mother.
0: It's interesting to hear you describe your father and your grandfather, and I know you to be a very emotional, giving father. Where do you think that was modeled for you, or is that a personality trait that you...
2: Mom, my mother, was very much sort of one of us in the earlier years. Our household was run kind of the old sort of a wait-till-your-father-gets-home sort of scenario. He was very strict and felt it as his fatherly duties. It was a responsibility. So, and later on, it was very clear. He told me in junior high school, I am your father. I'm not your friend. That is not my job. Yeah. Clear as can be. He took his job respons- very seriously and with a lot of responsibility. That passed on. I not only have my biological daughter, but I also raised two stepsons. And they were very, very different personality people than myself with different influences. So I also, good, bad, or indifferent, took my parenting very seriously, my fathering very seriously. That was a very big responsibility. And even cried sometimes, worried that I was failing at it. So, Are you very close with your stepsons? Yes, I am. I think it's one of those, you stay in the trenches, you don't give up on each other, you'll, yes. you'll, you'll, find, you'll find it. And I really kind of think that's a decent metaphor because my younger of the two was with me longer from four years old on. And even at four years old, he was clear I was not his father, although that blurred through time. But when he was 18 and he moved out, I was sort of like, well, this could go either way. He'll either see and appreciate that I tried, or he'll just hate me. Yeah. There were times when the butting the heads was difficult, but I felt it was my responsibility to make the adjustments to figure him out, not him to make the adjustments to figure me out. Tricky relationship. Very much so. Uh, step-parenting is, you know, yeah, not really for the fragile.
1: Dave, tell us some more stories about your dad.
2: Okay. Well, one really long lifetime thing or most of my lifetime thing that really flows my dad through me a lot is that I got a lot of life lessons and uh, about life philosophy and stuff on the handball court Mm -hmm. little pre-racquetball you know uh, three-wall game that my dad started taking me to play when I was just barely seven but I was a little athletic kid so I kind of caught on And then I was kind of forced to do that. It was early on a Saturday morning, so I hated it for a long time. But I was there playing for a couple hours every Saturday. uh, Up until at least like 13 years old when I started, you know, rebelling against 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning or whatever it was. But then we'd go back and forth. But we spent a lot of time together in a unique way on the court. And the way he taught me about handball was again, for me, life lessons. You're going to learn the game of handball, but it's going to translate. Dad didn't take it easy on me. If he knew I had a weakness or he saw what my weaknesses were, he was going to hit as my weakness. So I would develop more strength on my weak side. This is
1: kind of like the crow on the fence story. Yeah. (laughs) And,
2: uh, And so again, I was Really, in the grand scheme of things, a better athlete than he was, but I did not beat him until I was 16 or 17 years old, and that's a decade after I started playing.
1: And that moment, that moment that you beat him?
2: He was 40. That moment was really, it was really big for both of us. It really was, he was stoic and did not say a word to me about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we just got done went home like we normally do because it was the last game at the end of a very long day that I finally wore him out and beat him with my youth and we just went home and it went on but years later (laughs) I've heard the story that oh man your father was so proud and all that you had accomplish this and you'd master this game and it was a persistence you know not everything comes easy you got to work for stuff and people are not always going to hand it to you easily so you're gonna have to work hard for it and you need to develop yourself
1: and the fact that he was proud rather than devastated or embarrassed says a lot about him as a father yeah. he saw it as as a coming of age for you. Very much so. It's a rite of passage. Yeah, rite of passage. I have a
0: question for both of you and it's just part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast was because I sense there's a vague yearning in most American men that there was more. There was more love, more pride, more emotion, all those things with your father. And now is withholding of those outward signs of pride and love, just something that's a learned behavior that is passed down from generations. Why do you think that is, doctor?
1: So my first thought in response to your question is that for many of us, when we put up a filter, that filter isn't selective. So it's a filter against tender emotions, and it's a filter against pride, and it's a filter. So if the filter is too big and we've learned it so well, then much of who we are and what we feel is going to get caught behind it.
0: So uh, there's fear for, of exposing ourselves as vulnerable. And so we uh, we put up that filter, that wall, that mm-hmm. uh, defense. And
2: Well, I think part of it is too is when you're choosing to be the iron fist, the king of this castle, then it changes up What happens when you show weakness? Because, no, you've already set yourself up. Higher the pedestal, the farther the fall is something I heard Dr. Cindy tell me once before. And it stuck with me. So in that, I think that he felt he ended up having behavioral responses to his placing himself in that position. Sure. Um, But when you first asked that question, you had something you said in your first uh, podcast You said he did the best he could. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting one for me. I do agree that my father did the best he could with the tools he had to work with and what he understood. But that doesn't mean that it went well. Oh, no. No. You know, that that, that contrast that uh, I think it makes me able to understand, maybe forgive certain things, you know, based on... Again, he just didn't have the tools. And the father story, one of my best father stories ever, not so flattering for dad, he's heard the story, is that when I was getting ready to go off to uh, acting conservatory, I was leaving Crack of Dawn the next morning. My best friend uh, at the time, who was also like the class valedictorian and the most respected friend of mine from my dad's standpoint, well, he came over in the afternoon and brought a bag of weed. When I'm leaving, it's a kind of a celebration day, so we smoke a little weed, of course we get the munchies, and we leave to go to lunch. He left his bag of weed on the table, and my dad came home for lunch. So we get back home, my dad's not there, but either is the bag of weed. <laughs> and
1: you you knew that you left it there.
2: Yes, it's 100%, We, you know, it was there, and we also were aware that my dad was a salesman, so it was possible for him to have come home. And so we start searching. anyway, we found he hid it somewhere in the house and we found it. And then he comes back home and he starts walking up and down. We have a kind of a long rectangular house. So it's up and down the hallways, went in the garage, went back and forth two or three times, you know, this pace. And we're kind of just you know, like uh, watching a ping pong game as he's you know, walking up and down. And he comes back in, Plants himself in the living room and looks at me sternly. And says, "I'd rather have my daughter a prostitute than my son hopped up on marijuana." <laughs> Again, I relate this to doing the best he could with the tools he had. Sure. He did not understand it at all. He, you know, been made aware that, you know, in his mind, marijuana and excuse <clears> me, <throat> heroin were all the same. Thing. They were classified and whatever, but this was a big deal, required a big statement, and that was it. And he, uh, so I heard those words. All I could say was, I understand I violated all the rules of your house. I'll get my stuff and go. And I literally went around the house. I'd already pretty much packed up, but I had clothes in the laundry. So I put laundry in, in, in plastic bags, threw them over my shoulder, and walked out the door left my friend standing there with my dad. <laughs> and I will say this. That could have gone really bad. Fortunately, it was my respected friend. So he looks at my friend and says, I just don't understand. Well-spoken friend says, Do you have friends that do the five o'clock cocktail? And just so happened their best friends were that. And he says, yes. My friend says, It's sort of our generation's version of that. Taking the edge off at the end of a day, you know, maybe on a weekend, you know. Dad didn't say much, swallowed it, said okay. I had to come back home. I left a few things. So he walks out, comes out to meet me at the curb. I was trying to avoid him because I didn't want to put him on the spot. But he comes out to the curb where I'm at, my car. says, I don't want this to be how you how you leave? I love you. Here's a little bit of college money. and I did not fortunately did not leave on that note. So he was aware and sensitive.
1: I just got a chill when and you said when you said that, yeah, there are
2: especially you know, again, highs and lows with every relationship, and I've had some really incredible, wonderful touching highs from a man who's not usually.
1: Dave, that moment when he said, "I love you." Uh Was that a surprise to you? Were those words new to you from him?
2: No, no, they weren't gratuitous words in our house per se. It wasn't just every time we laughed, but pretty regular to say those words. But as I got older, that part of it got really more awkward. There was a point when my dad and I kissed you know a little you know boy, son, father, son, and you get to that maybe close to late elementary school, 12, puberty-ish type of thing, and that stops. Mm -hmm. But it was there. So it was Mm
1: -hmm. present. Mm -hmm.
2: Again, I look back, there are choices my dad made on what he thought was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, stopping kissing your son at 13 Mm -hmm. was probably one of those things. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a bad thing for me. It wasn't like I had an experience. Wow, he doesn't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. But I remember when I was when the time I told you he cried,
1: mm-hmm.
2: when I went to leave uh, the house after I'd been there, I kissed him goodbye, and there was no resistance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't an unacceptable thing. Mm-hmm. It was just... Sure. Don't know...
0: You don't climb on your dad's lap anymore, and you don't kiss as much. and you... Yeah, and, and the
2: hugs are now punches on the arms. Yeah, yeah. You know.
1: uh-huh. That moment when he blew up and said what he said about your sister and you... I I get the sense that the overwhelming emotion right then for him was his fear of losing you. Not his fear of your transgression. But if my son is on drugs, that means he's gone from me. And that strikes fear in my heart.
2: And I really, I don't think I'm out of bounds saying that part of it was fear he'd failed. Fear he'd
1: failed. Sure. He sure. failed and he'd lost you. Mm-hmm. All of that. All of that work. All of that.
2: Yeah. again. It was a. He knew it was a big, big thing. He just didn't have the proper tools to put proper verbiage to it. Right. <laughs> but I did tell my sister. She was really had a really. What was off the hook? And you know, she go <laughs> do what you want now, man. You can be a <laughs> prostitute, and you're still not as bad as me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: sibling
1: rivalry uh,
0: to a new yeah. level. Well, that's a wonderful story and the, and it's part of the reason we're doing this project is that that some father may hear this and it may broaden his mind and may uh change the filter just to a slight degree. That would be wonderful if men could be a little easier on themselves and easier on their children and easier with emotions and love and so David is there anything that I you just had want to seen? say that
2: he made it possible even though we didn't experience the same way but he still made it possible for me to have a different relationship with my children. Yes. I do show pride in the moment. Again, it wasn't drilled into me away like that was a life lesson. Mm-hmm. It was just his way. Mm. Now, do you not, think not it would be way.
0: different if Katie your daughter was a son? Do you think the relationship would be very different?
2: Well, only in surface, maybe activities would have been different, but I don't really think the dynamic of my relationship or how I feel or how I conducted myself. There would be things. So I did raise two boys. The stepsons the you know, yes, boys, yes. and they went through both those stages of boy to man under my watch. There were certain things in that role that were different, but I was pretty much direct
0: with all of them we're similar age we're in our 60s and uh, a lot of the the fathers of our generation i think part of the issue was i don't want to make a pansy out of my son <laughs> i don't want to make him weak i don't want uh, they were much more loving with their daughters because they wanted to show their sons how to be strong. That was the lesson. And so stoicism, uh, strength in the face of crisis, all those things were valued lessons that they felt they were passing on. And so too much emotion, too much lovey-dovey stuff was, was gonna get in the way of those lessons.
2: If there's time, can I show one more quick story? Sure, on this? absolutely. Uh, when it came with me and my son, my younger of the two boys, when I met Kathy and we were dating, he was living with three women. And those three women were doting on him, and plus his mom had guilt about what happened to the relationship before that. So he was being the super overly pampered, all-female energy thing. So he would whimper and cry and for every little thing. Well, again, I'm open to the crying thing, but he was going over the top. So as a dad, I felt it kind of important that, hey, you know, I'll tell you what. You can cry, but if it's not about you're hurt or it's really you just need to do it in your room. Yes. You know, we don't cry for no no reason. Well, you can if you want, but you do it in your room. You don't have to wait for permission. When you're done, you can come back out. Don't so he's, so I, I could see him trying to scrunch up his face and be all serious and go to his room. He's like six years old or something <laughs> like that. And so he goes in. And so he's out playing soccer. And I'm, I'm assistant coaching. on the sidelines. He's playing soccer, and he gets drilled right in the face. The ball full on in the face on a hard kick and he goes down and he's on the ground and so we're not down to get there and he's crying. And as soon as I show up and I say, are you okay? He really like, he was not supposed to be crying. Mm. And in that moment I went, no, Brian, this is one of those things that is things you cry about completely. Okay. And so we, in that moment I was aware to, you know, that it was happening, but it was again, the result of trying to, Sure,
0: sure. Well, you know, don't use it Oh, be a, be a good boy, you know. <laughs> don't use it for manipulation. <laughs> if that's the reason you're crying, to manipulate someone, then that that's
2: a good lesson to learn. Mm,
1: expand your repertoire a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
2: But it was cute when he would know he was crying over the wrong thing. He would just walk to his room.
0: <laughs> I have to say, Cindy, this live interview is so much better. This is the first live interview we've done. Every other interview we've done has been over zoom and we had a great time but we hope everything continues to trend in the way it is with the covid virus so we can continue doing live interviews because i just find it so much uh more fulfilling and and uh, and easier don't you
1: there are stories going on Even while Dave's talking. So we're listening to you, Dave, and we're making eye contact. Gary and I are listening to you and making eye contact. We can see when you're about to go in a different direction. It's so much richer when we're sitting together.
2: And it's great also to have eyes to look into and, and, you know, and you guys are very warm for anybody that's considering it. It's a very warm and inviting experience.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Dave Newcomer for being with us. And thank you, Dr. Cindy. And we'll see you next time on Daddy Never Cried. For the good and the bad, I'm just like my dad, but daddy never cried. For the good and the bad, I'm just like my dad, but daddy never cried.